where we do need the Lord every hour and in special ways when we look to his word, we are desperate for his help. So let's go to him now and ask him for that. Let's pray. Father, this time that we've come to now is the most important thing that we do every week when we come to your word and when we gather together to come to the Lord's table and sing to you and offer prayers to you. So we pray quite simply that you would continue to minister to us in this time, that you would come and inhabit everything that we're doing, that you would show up now by your spirit and teach us from your word. We are unable to teach ourselves. We're unable to learn on our own what is ultimately right and true and good. We need you to show us those things, and so we pray that you would. We know that you love us. We know that you are utterly faithful to us. And we know that we are now called by your name and that we are in your son by faith. So come now, teach us, show us yourself from your word, show us ourselves and show us Christ that we might be changed as we behold him. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, Paul, in his letter to the Philippians at the beginning of chapter 3, says this, writes this, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. And then he goes on to talk about not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but rather a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Paul is essentially saying in that letter to the Philippians, I'm going to keep writing the same things to you. I'm cool with doing that. It's no trouble to me, and it's good for you, and it's safe for you. That I would keep writing the same things. This reality, the fact that we, like the Philippian Christians, need to continually hear the same things all the time, is because we, like them are fallen. We need to hear the same things over and over and over again because like every believer through history, we tend to forget what's true. This is why the church, the saints, the redeemed, us, constantly need the gospel preached and applied to us. This is why we are told to assemble together regularly, because we need this. We a lot of times don't feel like we do, but we do. In the book of Proverbs, we've begun a sermon series through the first nine chapters in recent weeks. Today we are in Proverbs 4. We have seen repeatedly instruction from Solomon a proverbial father to his proverbial son about the goodness of wisdom, about the value of wisdom. We have seen him repeatedly exhort his son to remember wisdom and to seek wisdom and to pursue it as something that is more valuable than anything. This, what we've seen in Proverbs, is because we are all bent towards foolishness, not wisdom. God in his word has 
written these things through human beings because we tend to forget and we need to be reminded. So you might be thinking like I was in sermon prep this week. It's like, man, here we are again looking at wisdom like we have been for the last three weeks. Wisdom, again, it's because we are foolish naturally and not wise. It's because we tend to forget what wisdom is. Think about how we all are as children, just to illustrate this reality. Naturally, we all do wrong. We naturally break all the rules. Everybody who has children or who has spent time around children or can remember your own childhood knows that this reality is true, that we never have to be taught to do wrong. We never have to be taught to be selfish. We never have to be taught to covet what our siblings or our friends have. We never have to be taught to get angry. We never have to be taught to be impatient. We never have to be taught to destroy things. It's interesting just to think about the fact that God made us in his image to cultivate the earth. And naturally, we're bent on destruction. We have to be taught righteousness. We have to be taught to cultivate and nurture. The flesh, brothers and sisters, is foolish. We need to be taught wisdom. And we need to be reminded regularly of what wisdom is because we tend to forget wisdom. And so for our purposes today, as we look to Proverbs 4, we trust the Lord and his word that we need to hear these things again. And just like Paul says, it's no trouble for me to write these things to you again. And it's safe for you. We trust the Lord that it's good for us and safe for us to consider wisdom and what real wisdom is from Proverbs yet again today. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to Proverbs 4. You'll be helped by having a copy of the scripture in front of you as we survey the text together. If you don't have a Bible with you, we will get the verses to Proverbs 4 up here on the screen, and you can follow along that way. Now that you have gotten there, or your attention is now up on the screen, I'm going to read God's word for us, beginning in Proverbs 4, verse 1. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction. And be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Hear, my son, and accept my words, for so that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. 
When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So just a few brief comments about the passage before I give you the plan for today. This text, Proverbs 4, if we're thinking about the biblical categories of law and gospel, this text is basically all law. That is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. By that I mean that this text is full of things like this. Do this and you will live. Do this and things will go well. Don't do this because it will bring ruin upon you. That's how the law speaks. The text is also very simple. In that, when I read it just now, you, even if you haven't even read it this week, even if you're just looking at it this morning for the first time, you get the sense of it pretty easily as you listen to the words and as you survey them. So my plan for today is to preach the sermon in two parts. Part one, I want to go through the text section by section. And we're going to kind of make several passes through it with the uses of the law in view. And then secondly, part two, I want to do an extended reflection more so like we've been doing on what God's wisdom entails in light of the entire witness of Scripture. So we're going to try to bring in the entire witness of the Bible and think about wisdom. We're exhorted to pursue it. We're told it's good. What does wisdom look like in this world according to the entire witness of the Bible? So that's the hope for part two. So part one, we're going to begin with the text. And I'm going to make a few comments about the law. And then we're going to survey this passage a few times. It's important for us to remember just by way of more introductory comment, that when we see the words of the father to the son in Proverbs, it is at the same time divine instruction. We've thought about this a couple of different times already. That inspired of the Holy Spirit, Solomon is writing as a proverbial father to his proverbial son. And so we see these things as applicable to all human beings for all time. The sections of this text, you can see them pretty easily if you're looking at a, a printed version of this. The three sections of this passage are verses 1 to 9, verses 10 through 19, and then verses 20 to 27. There's an addressing of the son at the beginning of each of those sections. Hear my son. Hear my son. 
my son. It's a addressing going on there. So as we think about the law of God and how it was given in his word, you will remember that God in the Garden of Eden had made all things good and he had made humans uniquely in his image and he made a covenant with Adam and Eve. He gave them marching orders, what they were to do. They were to reign over the creation in God's stead. They were to fill the earth and subdue it. They were to cultivate it. He gave them one prohibition that we have in the early chapters of the book of Genesis, that they could eat of everything that was good. They were not to eat of that one tree. We know that Adam and Eve broke that covenant with God and that upon their breaking it, sin entered the world, the creation was cursed, and human beings were plunged into ruin. Now, upon the fall of man, we also know that God in grace made another promise, another covenant. In chapter 15 of Genesis 3, he promised a redeemer who would come from Eve, from the seed of the woman, who would conquer the great enemy of God's people, Satan, the serpent. So then, from that point forward in Scripture, we understand that God's covenant of grace is unfolding through history and time and space. And that underneath that big covenant of grace, there are a number of other covenants underneath that, right? So we have the covenant God made with Noah, that he said, I'm going to sustain the world. We have the covenant God made with Abraham. I'm going to make of you a people. I'm going to raise up an offspring for you. Every nation of the earth will be blessed through you. You'll have a land forever. Then we also know that God made a covenant with Moses in which, through which he gave the law. The Mosaic law, as it's been understood in church history, was in one sense a reissuing of the covenant of works that God had made with Adam. Do this and live. It was a reissuing of that covenant, not formally, but with respect to its terms. Do this and you will live, is how the Mosaic Law speaks. So we know that as redemptive history continues to unfold, the law given to Moses does not in any way undermine or contradict the promise made to Abraham. God gave his law for a number of purposes that we're going to consider together now. Just a brief reminder for us, before we turn our attention immediately back to Proverbs, the three uses of the law, as it has been understood by believers through history, God gave the law of Moses first so that we would be shown our sin and driven to the Christ, the Messiah. In the Mosaic covenant context, that was clear in that the Mosaic law constantly drove the people to what? The sacrificial system. They were constantly driven to the sacrificial system so their sins could be atoned for. They were constantly violating God's law. And atonement had to be made. So even then we see God driving his people away from themselves to his mercy to the atonement that he would provide and make. The second use of the law is to restrain human corruption. So in the law, we'll think more about this in a minute, there are promises made for keeping it. There are penalties threatened for breaking it. It restrains human evil. The third use of the law is to be used as the perfect guide for our lives in Christ in the church. So with all of those in view, we're going to consider Proverbs 4. 
We live, you understand, we live these uses of the law. Like if you're sitting there this morning, you're thinking, I've never heard this before. I've never heard anybody talk this way before. It's okay. Wrestle with the Bible. Big picture. Ask questions. But then think about your life in the church. Think about how we live together all the time in our interaction with one another. These three uses of the law show up constantly. When we're in conversation and somebody has sinned, one of the things that we'll often say is, brother, sister, look to Christ. He is your righteousness. What is that? That's the first use of the law. You're a sinner. You're a wretch. You've broken God's law. Look to Christ. First use. Second use in the church. We talk like this all the time. Brother, sister, don't go there. It's going to wreck your life. Brother, sister, pursue that because it's good for you. What is that? That's second use of the law. When we talk, we also, in Christ Jesus, will talk regularly about conforming our lives to the word of God. Pursue the things that God says are good. Flee from the things that God says are evil. Pray that your life would be in alignment with his word. What is that? In Christ Jesus, that's the third use of the law. So these things are not foreign to how we live together in the church. All right, now, let's look to Proverbs 4. First use of the law in view, right? Showing us our sin and driving us to Christ. There are a number of times in this text where we are told by the father to his proverbial son, he's speaking to us, he's saying, do these things, keep my commandments and you will live. Do these things and your life will be long. Whenever we are told those things, do this and live, do this and it will go well for you, do this and it will destroy you, we should see that we have failed to do the good. We have not kept the commands. And that we have also done the things that are wicked. We should see that on our own we stand condemned and that we are wrecked by God's holy law. We must look to the promised one, the Christ, who has kept all of God's commands for us. So if you look at like verses 3 and 4. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one inside of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Do this and live. When we see in verse 10. Hear, my son, and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. This sounds just like the fifth commandment of the ten, where God says, honor your father and your mother so that what? So that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do this and your days will be long. In verse 13, we again see, keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Verses 18 and 19, we see again depicted the two pathways that we've considered multiple times. The path of the righteous. If you remember Proverbs 2, the righteous are the ones who will inherit the land forever. And we also see the path of the wicked. And the wicked are those who will be cut off from the land forever. And in verses 21 and 22, we see these words again. Let them not escape from your sight, right? The, my words, my sayings, my commands. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. And in all of this, we're reminded that we have not kept God's commands perfectly that we might live 
through our own righteousness and obedience. And so then we should think, like Heidelberg Catechism question 60 puts it beautifully. How are you righteous before God? How art thou righteous before God? Answer, only by a true faith in Jesus Christ. So that, though my conscience accuse me that I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them and am still inclined to all evil, notwithstanding God without any merit of mine but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Even so, as if I had never had had nor committed any sin, yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me, inasmuch as I embrace such benefit with a believing heart. When you ever see in Scripture, do this and you'll live, the first thing that you should think is, thank God for Jesus Christ who has done it that I might live in him. First use of the law. Second use of the law. Here we go. In this use, God is telling us what is good and upright. He tells us what's evil. He promises blessings for abiding by his law. He threatens punishment for breaking his law. And all of this works to restrain our corruption and our foolishness. Let's look through the passage together, beginning in verse 1. Solomon exhorts his son, Hear your father's instruction. Be attentive that you might gain insight. If you listen to the Father's instruction, if you listen in this sense to the commands of Scripture, you will gain insight. That's a good thing for your life. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. The precepts, the teaching, the doctrine, the wisdom I give you is good. Don't forsake it. If you forsake it, it will be bad for you. If you heed it and remember it and live by it, it will be good for you. Verse 3. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one inside of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. Get wisdom, get insight, do not forget, and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Don't forsake her, and she will keep you. If you pursue wisdom, cling to wisdom, and don't forsake wisdom, it will be good for your life. End of verse 6, love her, and she will guard you. It will be a protection around you. Wisdom, according to God's word, is a protecting force in our lives. There's no debating this. Living according to God's word protects us from all kinds of bad. Verse 7, the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. There will be exaltation that results from living a wise life according to scripture. She will honor you if you embrace her. There is honor associated with living a wise life in accordance with God's word. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Verse 10, hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. Your life is going to go better if you accept my words. You will be protected and kept from all kinds of terrible things. I have taught you, verse 11, the way of wisdom. I've led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. You will be kept from all kinds of stumbling if you heed my word and listen to my word and live according to my word. Verse 13, keep hold of instruction. Don't let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Now this, don't enter the path of the wicked and don't walk in the way of evil. Don't go there, son. Avoid it. Don't go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. 
for wicked people can't sleep unless they've done wrong. You don't want that to be your lot in life. Wicked people are robbed of sleep unless they have harmed someone else. They've made someone else stumble. You don't want that to be your life. Verse 17, they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. Their lives are based upon, are sustained by wickedness and violence and evil. You don't want that for your life. Verse 18, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Pursue the path of righteousness. It's good for you. Verse 19, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. There's so much foolishness and confusion. They're stumbling all over the place and don't even know what they're stumbling over. You don't want that for your life. Verse 20. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. There is life and healing that comes from the word of God. Verse 23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart, because out of your heart flows everything else. This is just like what Jesus says, out of the hearts of men come these things, right? Guard your heart, therefore. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. It will harm you. It will not be good for your life. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Think about what you're doing according to what God has said is good and what God has said is evil. Do not live by instinct alone. You have all kinds of instincts and desires that are not good for you. We all do. Don't live according to instinct and desire. Ponder the path of your feet. Verse 27. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Just a brief word as we consider the third use of the law. We won't read every single verse, but more consider it in a broad, sweeping way. God's law for us as Christians in the church guides our lives in Christ. You want to know what's good for you? You want to know what's bad for you? You want to know what you pursue? You want to know what you should avoid? Look to God's law. He tells us. We are... Sinner saints. We talk about this a lot. We are at the same time saint and sinner. And so therefore we need God's word to guide us. We cannot guide ourselves. We pursue the good things that God has told us are good. We flee from the evil. And we seek to align our lives with God's word as we trust Christ. It's how we live in the church. So as we consider this passage in just a broad way. When we look to the things that we are told are good, get wisdom, get insight, listen to my words, keep my commandments, you will be exalted for this. You will be honored for this. There will be blessing for this. We look at that in Christ Jesus, knowing we're safe and say, God, give me grace that I might pursue wisdom. God, give me grace that I might pursue insight, that this might describe my life. Help me as I live life in the context of the local church to help my brothers and sisters pursue wisdom. 
as we look at other things where God has told us to avoid the paths of the wicked and all of these ways of destruction where we are bent on hurting other people and doing wrong constantly. We look at that and say, God, may that never be me. Keep my feet from the path of wickedness. Help us as we live together. Keep one another from evil. And as we think about our hearts and guarding our hearts, and as we think about wicked speech, and as we think about how people stumble over all kinds of things in life, how people live according to their desires and go all kinds of astray, our prayer in the church is, Father, give me grace that I might live unto you. Give me grace that I might live wisely in accordance with your commands. Keep me from stumbling into sin. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. We look to God's law together in Christ Jesus as a guide for our lives to protect us from all kinds of harm and to produce all kinds of good eternally for us in abiding by God's word. So as you look at a passage like Proverbs 4, you can consider this as God's good and holy and perfect law to you in all of these various ways. When you stack yourself up against it, you don't meet the standard and you are driven to Christ Jesus, which is a good thing. It's the best place to be. Secondly, you look at it and you say, my gosh, the blessings that come with keeping God's law are real. I want those. The punishment and the bad stuff that comes from breaking his law is not good at all. I don't want that. And it keeps you in check. Third, you look at it and you pray as you live life in Christ. You pray for God's grace that you would pursue wisdom and good. And you pray that God would keep you from stumbling. It's a good way to read not just Proverbs 4, but many passages in Scripture. This brings us to the second piece of our time together, part number two. As we reflect more on what God's wisdom entails in light of the whole witness of God's word. So I mentioned this at the beginning of the Proverbs series that because of the repetition that we get about wisdom, it's going to allow us to meditate a lot and reflect a lot about what wisdom is and what it looks like. We get to unpack wisdom together quite a bit. It's a good thing for us to do. So a good question to ask yourself, for us to ask ourselves this morning is, if we are going to be wise in this world, like really wise, not just like savvy, but real deep, meaningful, eternal wisdom. What are the things that we need to know and take into consideration? If we're going to be able to make up and down heads and tails of things in the world, what do we need to know? What I'm about to lay out is certainly not an exhaustive answer to that question. We could spend years unpacking that and contemplating that. But I'm, I'm planning to offer like five things, five subpoints for the note takers in the room. And before I do, I want to acknowledge this reality. These things that I'm going to offer have definitely been informed by my week. That's a normal thing, right? It's one of the beauties of having a living preacher, like not having a preacher on a screen. We live life together. We process things together. And so you get from me or any guy that's standing in this pulpit to preach, you're going to get real-life reflections from a living, breathing human being who lives with you. 
That means something. And this, this has been a heavy week at CBC. I mean, there's lots of things going on that we could talk about, but I know I spent a significant portion of my week in Colorado doing a funeral for one of our sisters in Christ. And so that is definitely going to inform what I'm about to say. And I trust that the passing of Jen Vallejos has landed heavily on a number of people who sit here even this morning. And we would be foolish beyond measure to think about wisdom and not consider life and death and everything that we experience in this world. So here we go. What does God's wisdom entail? Number one, it entails knowing that the world is fallen and that so are we. It entails knowing that the world is fallen and so are we. So think about Genesis 1 to 3. Those chapters are in the beginning of Scripture for a reason. They set the scene for the whole thing. They set the table to help us understand wreckage and ruin and sin and disaster. And they also foreshadow the new heavens and the new earth where we will be with God forever. God made everything and he made it good. He made man uniquely in his image. We've already considered the covenant that he made with Adam and Eve and how that covenant was broken. And how because of that broken covenant, a curse was pronounced by God on creation in all of mankind. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, we read these words. To the woman he, God, said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. It's going to be hard to bring forth kids, and it's going to be hard to raise kids. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. There's going to be all kinds of relational strife. It's not going to go well. You and your husband are going to butt heads about everything. Verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Your work is going to be hard. There's going to be toil. There's going to be heartbreak. It's going to be laborious. It's not going to be joyful. Even the earth will not yield produce to you easily. You will be frustrated constantly in what you aim to do. Verse 19, as if it wasn't bad enough. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. How bad is it? The earth that you were made to reign over will swallow you one day. Your body will be put into the ground that you were made to reign over. Verse 24 of Genesis 3. The presence of God, the joyful, immediate presence of God, is no longer a reality for humanity. He, God, drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, that's a mighty angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Bottom line, brothers and sisters, is that the creation is groaning. Groaning, Romans 8. To be liberated from the bondage that it's been put in. The whole creation is groaning and so are we. We are groaning for the revelation of the sons of God and the consummation of our redemption, namely the resurrection of our bodies. 
If you think about the book of Ecclesiastes, who, excuse me, which was written by Solomon, the same man who wrote the majority of the Proverbs, we read there that because of the curse, because of the fall, there is a futility that characterizes life under the sun. And then even the good things that we have, because we need to be real, we have good things. God is good. He made a good and perfect world. Sin and the curse has marred it, but there is still good in the world. We still enjoy good things, and we should be thankful for them. And at the same time, we have to acknowledge that even the good things that we have, death stomps all over them. The best things that we have in this life, in this world, will one day be a memory. And then they'll just be gone. We live in a world where we bury our spouses, where we bury our parents, where we even bury our children. And only an insane, foolish person would look around and say that things are as they should be. Death has done this to us. And biblically speaking, we have done this to ourselves. And God has let it be. We got we to gotta deal with that. We got to wrap our minds around that if we're going to be wise at all. Second piece of what God's wisdom entails. We need to know and understand that God would deal with death and all that has flowed from it. God would deal with death and all that has flowed from it. God the Father sent God the Son to take on human flesh, like skin and muscle and bones and all of those things, in order to save his people. And we know from Scripture that this had always been their plan, they being the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God's wisdom entails knowing from his word the work of Christ and what he has done in the place of all believers. Namely, that he has made atonement for sin. He has also satisfied God's wrath for sin. So all of your corruption and all of your guilt and all of your shame and all of your wrongdoing all of your disobedience, all of your selfishness, all of your lust, all of your pride, all of your anger, Jesus has taken that upon himself in his own body on the tree and has paid it in full. The fact that you stand forgiven is scandalous in light of the fact that we are absolutely wretched if we're honest about ourselves. The fact that we stand forgiven has nothing to do with our deserving it. It has everything to do with the shocking, astonishing mercy of our Heavenly Father. Jesus, in his work for us also, was forsaken by God so that we never would be. Think of the Christ of Gethsemane as he is in agony. His sweat like drops of blood. He is sorrowful to the point of death, he tells his disciples. Think of the Christ of the cross who cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Not because he deserved it, but he experienced those things for your sake and mine. It's a great comfort to us as we suffer and as our hearts break that Jesus knew what it was to be forsaken by God in a way that you don't know in Christ Jesus. When we think of the work of Christ in our place, we think of his perfect life that he lived. Many have made the observation, and it's a good one, that Jesus did not just show up on the scene at Passion Week and die. He lived for 33 years in perfect obedience to the law of God. He says things in his ministry like, I came to fulfill all righteousness. I came to fulfill the law. Why? He didn't need it. He did it for you and me. He has fulfilled righteousness for you. So that you can stand in confidence before God, righteous, not because you are in yourself, but because Christ was righteous for you and gave you his righteousness. Jesus, in his work in our place, defeated death 2,000 years ago. So that even though our bodies are put in the ground, they will one day be resurrected and glorified. The language of the Book of Common Prayer is beautiful that is read at the graveside of a saint. It speaks of having our skin one day in Christ Jesus resurrected. Like we will have our skin again. And we will behold God, not with other, but with our own eyes. That is the power of the resurrection and what Christ has accomplished and secured for all who trust in him. Your body, though dead and corrupted in the ground, will be raised and glorified. And you will behold God in your flesh with your very eyes. Everything that we lost in Adam, we have in Christ. In Adam, we died. And in Christ, we will be made alive forever. Third piece of what God's wisdom entails. This flows right out of number two. If we're going to be wise, really wise, we understand that at the heart of the matter and at the bottom of it all, we can trust Jesus. We understand that we can trust Jesus. We can trust him and we can rest in him because his work stands outside of us. So if you've come in this morning and you're aware of your sin and your conscience is troubled and you are painfully mindful of all of the ways that you have violated God's law, or not all of them, but some of them. You're mindful. And you know that you have not lived as you should. You have not prioritized what you should. You've been angry when you shouldn't. You've been prideful when you shouldn't. You've lusted after people. Whatever it is, you fill in the blank, right? You know that. And you think to yourself, rightly, how could I ever have confidence before the holy God of the universe? The answer you have confidence because you have placed your trust in Christ and his work always stands outside of you, unaffected by your corruption and sin. His work is perfect for you and it's unshakable for you. You trust Christ. You trust what's outside of you to save what's wrong in you. We can trust Jesus also because his work is finished. It's one of the greatest pieces of the gospel message our 
religion is not a religion of do this and God will accept you. Ours, according to Scripture, is a religion at the base of it, at the bottom of it. Christ has done it and you are beloved by God in him. Everything that's required has been done. Everything that's necessary has been finished. And then when Christ said it's over on the cross, he meant what he said. He didn't tell you to go do your part so that you might be saved. He saved you. That's how we have confidence. You're a sinner as you sit here this morning and so am I. And if we're honest, like we just considered earlier from the Heidelberg Catechism, we have broken all of God's commands. We've never kept any of them, and we still sin. Such is the reality for every, every redeemed person, every believer. But by faith, God has counted to us all of the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Jesus. It's as if we never had any sin, but it gets better than that. Sometimes you've been told in your life, maybe, that justification means it's like you never sinned. That's half true. But it's half deadly wrong. You need righteousness. And that's been counted to you too. Christ's work is sufficient. All of your work and all of your striving could never save you. All of our tears and all of our zeal won't do. But Christ will do. We can trust Christ because he has promised that he'll never lose us. Thank God he has made that promise. Because if it were up to you or up to me, we would shake ourselves loose from Christ's grasp. But he tells us it's not going to happen. He tells us that he's not going to lose any of all that the Father has given to him. But he's going to raise us up with him on the last day. He tells us, you're in my hands and nobody can pluck you out. My Father, who has given my sheep to me, is greater than all. And nobody can pluck the sheep out of my Father's hands. I and the Father are one. One in essence and being, yes, but one in purpose to save the sheep. And Jesus prays for us that we would be with him where he is to behold his glory forever. And so we will be. The curse, brothers and sisters, has been defeated. 2,000 years ago, the promised one came. The law was fulfilled. A cross stood, a tomb was emptied, and death died outside of Jerusalem. So real wisdom, God's wisdom, entails trusting Christ and praising God for what he has done for you in his son. Number four. The fourth piece of wisdom, according to God's word, is that we would walk humbly before God and keep his commandments. We would walk humbly before our God and keep his commandments. So as we've considered in this series, we trust the Lord and not ourselves. We aim to not think too highly of ourselves, which we are all prone to do. We see ourselves as the foremost of sinners, just like Paul. And that's it's imitate Paul. I am the foremost of sinners and the mercy of Christ, the patience of Christ that was shown to me was shown to me so that Jesus might display that mercy and that patience to all the saints. Praise God for that reality. So I can say that as your pastor, 
as the man who stands up here regularly to preach God's word, I am just like all of us. I'm a wretched sinner in need of Christ. And I can say that Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And that if you see God's patience with me and his mercy with me, take heart because he will be merciful and patient with you as well. The idea that pastors are people that have it all together is ridiculous. And we can talk about that another time. We'll keep going. In humility, we see God's wisdom and God's ways as better than our own. And we seek to align our lives with his word. So this gets back to what we were talking about. We don't just live based on our desires. We don't live based on our instincts. We don't just live because, ah, I feel like doing that. We don't assume that we know better. Doesn't mean we don't wrestle. Of course we wrestle. But we don't, like to use the language of judges, just do what's right in our own eyes. We pursue what God says is good. And we flee from what he says is evil. We pray, as I mentioned earlier, for God's grace, that we might keep his commands, that we might pursue and have wisdom, that we might hold fast to the truth. We pray for God to keep us from sin. We pray that God would make it so that we would not forsake his teaching. We pray that God, like Psalm 25, the language of David, continue to guide me and teach me in your truth. Lead me in your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation and you I hope all the day long. We pray that God would keep us from walking in the path of the wicked. We pray that like verse 27, Mackenzie and I were talking about this this week. You read that. Do not swerve to the right or the left and turn your foot away from evil. It's like God help me to not do that. Number five. God's wisdom in this this world entails living an outwardly oriented life. Living an outwardly oriented life. So if you're going to be wise according to Scripture, you will live a life where you aim and strive to love your neighbor as yourself. You will live a life in which you aim and strive to consider others as more significant than yourself. The great banners over the church that fly, trust Christ. The other one, love one another. The thing is, living this kind of outwardly oriented life where you consider others as greater than yourself and you seek your neighbor's good genuinely and you concern yourself above all things at a horizontal level with loving other people, it flies in the face of so many ideals in this world and certainly in America. I don't know if you've thought about that. It flies in the face of so many ideals in this world and certainly in, in our society. It does. Because we live in a land, there are so many wonderful things about the land we live in. But we live in a society and a land where ambition is viewed as a great thing. Now, historically, ambition has been viewed as a vice, not a virtue. Because properly defined, 
Ambition is to seek greatness for your own renown. That's how it's been viewed historically. Historically, ambition has been viewed where you're going to do all that you can for your own gain. And we live in a society that prizes these things. Go out there and make a name for yourself. Go out there and get everything for yourself that you can. You have dreams, go get them. That's the air we breathe. But how does Jesus talk? Now, Jesus does not in any way tell us not to work hard. Of course, we work hard. Work ethic is good. Responsibility is good. To be driven is good. But why do we do what we do? Consider the words of Christ in a society that tells you to seek your own fame and your own good. You remember when Jesus sends out the 72 to go preach and heal people and have power even over the spirits? And they come back and they're geeked up about what they've done. And they say, Jesus, it's incredible. Like even the spirits were subject to us in your name. What does he say? He says, do not rejoice over that, that the spirits were subject to you, are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice over all the great things that you did in my name. Rejoice over the fact that your names are written in heaven. What else does he say? He talks to his disciples regularly because the disciples, just like us, constantly bicker and fight amongst one another about who's the greatest. Who's going to have the seats of prominence in the, in the, in the kingdom, for crying out loud, right? And what does Jesus always do in those moments? He often will grab a child, put a child in the midst, and say, if you're going to be a part of the kingdom of God, you need to be like this child. Weak, dependent, needy, not great in the eyes of people who look at him or her. And he says that those who are great in his kingdom, in the kingdom of God, are the ones who serve others. Those who give of themselves for the good of others, who put themselves last and others first, those are the ones who will be great in my kingdom and in the kingdom of my Father. So wisdom, according to Scripture, means that we live an outwardly oriented life, seeking the good of our brothers and sisters and of our neighbor. So to just put a kind of brief bow on this whole thing. To sum it up, God's wisdom looks like this. Trust Christ. Walk humbly before God. Pursue good. Flee from evil. And love one another. Say that again. Trust Christ. Walk humbly before God. Pursue good. Flee from evil. And love one another. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, as we have even laid out those handful of things that would, not completely, but would describe wisdom from your word, we are mindful of our need for you that you would give us the grace required that we might do those things. Sustain our faith in Jesus, we pray. Give us grace that we might walk humbly before you. Give us grace that we might pursue good and that we might flee from evil. And give us grace that we might love one another in a way that would honor you and be good for us. We thank you for the fact that you have adopted us, that you have loved us, and that you know us in Christ. And that 
You have not given us the spirit of fear, but the spirit of adoption. We pray that you would continue to minister to us, that you would continue to transform us by your grace and by your spirit's work in us, even as we come now to the Lord's table. We pray that we would call to mind the work of Christ in our place and that as we come to the table in faith that you would do good, powerful, transforming, faith-sustaining work in us. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.